If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Um, as you're turning there, if you do not have a Bible and you would like to use one in the seat back in front of you, they're the black ESV Bibles is the version I'm reading from, but also there are these red Gospel of Johns that are on the back table. Feel free to grab them, take them, pass them out to friends, or use them tonight if you want. If you're wanting, maybe even throughout this series, just a specific little kind of booklet for you to read and write in, you, this might be a good resource for you to to use, but just once again, making you aware they're back there. We have plenty of them, so grab them, pass them out. One of the reasons why we did this for this series, especially as you think about passing them out, we'll talk a little bit more in tonight's sermon about this idea. Um, but as you try to encourage and point other people to Jesus, the Gospel of John is a great book of the Bible uh, to kind of get people started. If someone wants to learn more about Christianity and encourage to read the Bible, the Gospel of John uh, is a great place. Uh, to start. All the Gospels have a goal of communicating the truth of Jesus and his life and what he did in order that people believe. But John had a very specific uh, way of doing that to uh, a non-Jewish audience. I think the others uh, are very helpful, of course, but he isn't necessarily speaking as much within the Jewish culture and speaking to the people in person and dealing with individuals, which is one of the reasons why we're studying it, but also a great resource for others to read. And so maybe this is something that you want to pass on. Uh, As we continue in this series, also we're memorizing John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 together. We're through verse 3. Um, And so if you do not have it memorized, I want to encourage you to continue to memorize. One of the things that memorization does is it causes you to meditate on a passage of Scripture. Um, And so I want to encourage you to jump in. We're not too far along in this that you couldn't catch up. Um, But if not, that's okay. I want us to quote it and read it all together. And so once again, I'll invite you to have your Bibles to John chapter 1 as we read and quote John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 together. So join me, John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Amen. I'm really grateful um, for tonight's text, as we come to John chapter 1, I want to read verses 36 all the way through verse 51. And so would you join me now? The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Just a time out for a second. Why does it say Cephas and Peter? Um, Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is the Greek translated into English. And so 
Um, it was common to speak in Aramaic, even though the Gospels were written in John. I mean, the Gospel, the, the gospel was written in Greek here in John. And so it's using, it's kind of quoting and translating all at the same time. So he said, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Tonight's sermon, uh, main point is simply this, invite others to come and see Jesus. Invite others to come and see Jesus. Thinking about invitations, I want you to ask yourself this question and think about it. What was one of the greatest invitations you've ever received? Think about it. I often think about, because we just got done watching uh, March Madness and basketball, national championships, and whether it's basketball, football, baseball, or whatever other sports, oftentimes the winner gets an automatic invitation to the White House. It's a pretty good invitation. I would like to go to the White House, right? And you begin to think about that invitation or other invitations, and you can think of good invitations in your life. Now, what was maybe an invitation that you think of was, hey, this was a really uh, pivotal or life-changing invitation in my life. I mean, my wife's not in here at the moment, but if she was, she'd probably tell you that when I invited her on a date, that was a game changer for her. It changed her life forever, right? Maybe not, but it did. It did change her life. She said no a number of times, but that's okay. We won't get into that. But when you begin to think about invitations, invitations can be just a simple invitation to dinner or a simple invitation to something, but some invitations will end up changing the trajectory of your life. This is what we want to see as we look at this text is that when we see the stories here of these disciples, an invitation to them changed their life. And when we say the main point of today's sermon is to invite others to come and see Jesus, it's because we believe that's an invitation that can change their life as well. With the goal and the desire of living in such a way that we invite other people to Jesus, knowing that Jesus is going to come and as people encounter Jesus, he will change their lives. We've titled this series simply Encountering Jesus because as we look throughout the Gospel of John, it's one encounter after another where lives are forever changed. But as we move to the action step of the main point of inviting others to come to Jesus, we don't start there. I want us to look at truth number one, which is simply this, encounter Jesus first. Encountering Jesus first. Before we ever get to this moment, where Andrew invites his brother or Philip invites Nathaniel, what happens first for each of these gentlemen? They first encounter Jesus. Look again with me at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, we're going to start walking through this text and unpacking it. 
But I, I want us to remember, it's, last week we looked at the text before, which says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, again, is making this statement about Jesus when it says, The next day. Now, as we read John chapter 1 and 2, it's really helpful because it gives us some of the best chronology and very exact statements about as events happen, where a lot of times the other gospels, they collect things and they're telling an overall story, but John 1 here gives us exact chronology. It says the next day. So the day before was this moment where John sees Jesus, and this was our text from last week, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, remember those the, John the Baptist had disciples also, and so those same disciples the next day, again, John was standing with two of those disciples, and then he looked at Jesus, and once again, as Jesus walked by, he said, behold the Lamb of God. Now, two disciples are being referenced here that are disciples of John the Baptist. Now, it's the second day in a row you've heard your teacher, your rabbi say, hey, there's the Messiah that we've been longing for for centuries. Two days in a row now, all of a sudden, day one, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Day two, you're like, I'm following the wrong guy. Like, I'm following the wrong guy. Like, John the Baptist, you're great and all, but if you're, what you're saying is true, then I need to leave you and go follow Jesus. And that's exactly what they do. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned around and saw them following him. This is kind of like a, a little bit, I, I don't know if this is actually how it worked out, but you know, I'm trying to put this in narrative form in my head. And Jesus is walking, and all of a sudden he kind of is like, hey man, we got some creepers. Like they, they, just, they just had this moment. Jesus walks by and they just kind of walk away from the, there wasn't this formal gathering or there's this conversation and they were like, hey, can we follow you? Then they left John the Baptist and went and followed Jesus. Jesus is just walking on. They're like, well, guess we need to go ahead and go and catch up if we're going to. And so they just kind of walk off and Jesus turns around and kind of sees these two gentlemen following him. And he goes, hey, what are you seeking? Like, like, what do you want? Now, I do believe as we read this text, it's a very practical and it's very narrative. But I I hope that you'll give me uh, trust to say this, that as you read the gospel of John, more than even the other gospels, all of them are very specific But more than other gospels, I think John is very intentional with every word that he uses. Let me give an argument for this, which you're going to hear me talk about a whole lot. Um, When we look at the gospel of John, there is one ethical imperative in the entire gospel. What do we mean by ethical imperative? Imperative is a command, basic grammar, tell you to do something. Sit down, stand up, that's an imperative, that's a command. Ethical has to do with how you live your life as it relates to the standards of God. Let's just go with it. Let's define ethical that way. So the Ten Commandments are ten ethical imperatives. All right? So Ten Commandments, ethical imperatives. In the entire Gospel of John, there is one ethical imperative in the entire thing. Now, I want you to just think about Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is about a tenth of the Gospel of John, if not even smaller than that in comparison to the Gospel of John. And in the last three chapters alone of Ephesians, there's almost a hundred imperatives that are in the last three chapters. So you've got a hundred almost ethical imperatives in three chapters in the book of Ephesians and one in 20-something chapters in the Gospel of John that's intentional. He intentionally leaves out a bunch of commandments, but only puts one in there in order to make a point. This one is really important. 
I, I say that now you're wondering, well, which one is it? Like, you're going to tell us. Well, we'll get to it in chapter 12, so see in about six months. And I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll go ahead and tell, I'll tell you now. It's simply this. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you is that you love one another as I have loved you. John gives us one command in the entire gospel, essentially love one another. All right, now bringing it back to the point I'm making here, he's very intentional with everything he does and does not say. So the fact that the first thing he records Jesus saying in his gospel is what are you seeking? I think there's a greater theological question here than just a practical question. Practically, what are they seeking? Hey, can we follow you? Like that's a practical question. But I think there's a greater question here. Hey, what are, what are you really after? Because if you're wanting to learn about the kingdom of God, John the Baptist was already preaching about the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you haven't even heard me teach yet. You don't know anything about me other than what your rabbi has taught you. What are you seeking? And I think the picture here is that they left John the Baptist, who Jesus would say is the greatest person ever born of woman. Obviously second to himself. So they leave John the Baptist, who was no bad teacher. He was a great prophet. So why? To come follow Jesus. What are they seeking? They're seeking something. They're seeking the Messiah. I ask you, as we think about truth number one, encountering Jesus, as these two disciples were coming to follow Jesus, to encounter him, the question they posed that Jesus posed to them is, I think he poses to us as well. What are you seeking? Where, where are you, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means the teacher, where are you staying? Now, once again, very practical like, hey, we, we just want to know where you're going. Like, just let us know where you're going just in case we get separated, we can come find you kind of thing. I don't know if that's really the case, but where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. So they came and saw him where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, once again, very practical, but very intentional. And here's how this, I believe this was really intentional. And this really kind of stood out to me in the last couple of weeks as I was studying this passage. One of my favorite passages uh, within the gospel of John is John chapter 15. If, if any man would abide in me and I in him, you will bear much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And John chapter 15 is this whole dialogue where Jesus gives this challenge for us to abide in him, to remain with him and in him. And if we do, we will bear life in our life and through our life. The same language and phrasing that is used in John 15 is what is described here when he says he, they went and stayed with him. It's a very intentional word that John uses more than any of the other writers. This, this Greek word, meno, which means to remain with and to abide within, is one that John uses. I think there's, I think there's like 90 occurrences of this word, and John uses them, I think, 70 times. He's very intentional with this word to speak to our relationship. And so once again, very practical, but I think John is giving a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. He asks, what are you seeking? And they go, basically, where are you staying? We want to be with you. We're seeking to be with you. And he says what? Come and follow me. And they remained with him for it was about the 10th hour, which is about four o'clock in the afternoon, depending, there's two different ways that scripture will equate time. Um, and if, they're, if John's using it the same way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke does, then it's four o'clock in the afternoon. 
but we also see that sometimes they do equate time based off how we equate time. So it could have been 10 o'clock in the morning. I think based off context, because it was four o'clock in the afternoon, which makes more sense that the sun was going down. And so they were finding the place which they were going to stay. That makes more sense, which is why your footnotes will probably tell you four o'clock in the afternoon. So it's four o'clock in the afternoon. They're going and they're being with Jesus. But notice before, we're looking at what happens to them before they ever get to inviting others. First, they encounter Jesus. I want you to look, um, when we think about encountering, we're going to see not only these guys, but Peter and Nathaniel, who were about to get the invitation, they too encountered Jesus. And here's the idea, is that when we encounter Jesus, Jesus changes our lives. I want to look at Peter and Nathaniel and their story specifically. Look at Peter's, when he encounters Jesus in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him, and he said, what? You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, what can we draw from this? One, we understand how Peter gets his name, but I think there's more to it than that, because he was Simon. Now he's Cephas, which means Peter, which is, means rock. Cephas and Petros, Greek, uh, for Peter means rock. And so we understand how he got his name. But I want you to see in this moment, the moment that Jesus meets at this time, Simon, who's about to be Peter, when he meets him, he speaks into who he's going to be. He would later on and and say to, to Peter in relation to the preaching of the gospel that it's on this rock my church will be built. And Peter was a rock for the church we know in the first century and for the, the, the first believers. We know he was that rock, that solid foundation in a lot of ways that he led, but he was not that yet. We would even find out that towards the end of Jesus' life that Jesus would den- or Peter would deny Jesus. He was not yet that rock. And if he wasn't that rock three years later, that solid believer, follower of Jesus, then he would eventually become that, but he wasn't that the last week of Jesus' life. I guarantee he wasn't that in this moment. So why did Jesus do it? Because when you encounter Jesus, Jesus changes our future. Here in this moment with Peter, he's speaking into his future. He doesn't say who he is currently or who he was in the past, but he speaks to his future. When we encounter Jesus, he transforms our future. Look at Nathanael's story. Look at verse 48 for Nathanael. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus had said something prophetic to him, and Nathanael responds, hey, how do you know me? And he said, Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son, you are the king of Israel. Now, I want you to look at Nathanael. Peter, he speaks to his future. Nathanael, he speaks to his past. Now, I have no idea what was going on under that fig tree. It might have been a sinful act. It might have just been he was waiting because he was hot, and so he was looking for some shade. But there was something that was significant about that moment that when Jesus spoke to it, it immediately caused Nathanael to believe. I think it not only was prophetic, but I think there was something significant that would immediately bring to memory, would immediately bring something to Nathanael's mind that would let reveal to Nathanael, just like when we get to John chapter 4, Jesus would say something to reveal to the woman at well, the deepest part of her sin, to reveal that only the Messiah could know such a thing. And so I believe he does something like that with Nathaniel here. And whatever it is that comes to Nathaniel's mind, it causes him to believe. Here's the idea. With Peter, he changes your future. And with Nathaniel, he redeemed his past. He did something. Now, don't, um, don't read too much into that because the text doesn't give us all that information. But something was said about Nathaniel's past that caused him to believe. 
Jesus used his, his past to redeem him in that moment. When we encounter Jesus, he transforms our future and our past. Our life is forever changed. It's an invitation to meet him that changes everything. Second, not only do we encounter Jesus, but then we don't just encounter him, we must follow him. Before we can invite others to come and see and follow Jesus, we first must encounter Jesus ourselves. We first must recognize and encounter the one who changes our past and our future. The one who knows everything about us and loves us and is gracious towards us. And even once we meet him, there's still a decision to be made. It's come and follow. When we begin to think about imperatives, the, using that in this text, the only imperatives in this text that we read for our text tonight is simply this. Behold is used twice, and come and see is used twice. It's very intentional in the language that you behold something, and then you come and see. They beheld Jesus, and then they came and, and saw. It's real simple. There's this both within the text. There's this process of beholding something, and then following that something. And so, Encountering Jesus, to come and see, and to follow Jesus. And when we begin, begin to think about not only these disciples, when we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke gives us stories of when they came to follow Jesus that this, this story doesn't fully give us, which they're not parallel stories. This happened, then the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke happened um, so there was a couple of times, I know, mind blown for a second, there's a couple of times where Jesus goes to them and says, come and follow me. I actually will argue, I believe there's three times that Jesus comes to them and says, come and follow me. Three times Peter got an invitation to come and follow Jesus. Here was the first time. The second time he was fishing, and the third time he was fishing. There's some debate there. Is that one story or two stories? But the point is, is that in Peter's story to come and follow Jesus, he had to give up something. All of them did. All the disciples were doing something before they went and followed Jesus. These two disciples, the first two, gave up following John the Baptist, uh, 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 someone they knew to be the prophet, to come follow someone they just met the day before. Jesus, they had just met him the day before. But they gave up something. And when we come to follow Jesus, there's always something that we will have to give up, something lesser that is always worth giving up, even though if we can't see it in the moment. So this idea from the text is that we see these gentlemen encounter Jesus, recognize him for who he is. He reveals, he changes their past and their future. Then he says, hey, come follow me. And all of them had to give up a lesser thing to come follow Jesus, but it was worth it. But then the main point, I believe the emphasis of this text is truth number three, which is our main point, is simply to invite others to come and see Jesus also. Invite others to come and encounter Jesus all of them, the response is they encountered Jesus, they followed Jesus, and they immediately went and found someone else to come follow Jesus. Next week, we're going to have our Revive Week. Um, encourage you all to come be a part of it. Sunday night will be the same time at 4 o'clock, but then on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we will have uh, worship gatherings at 7 o'clock. Uh, they will not be uh, necessarily short. I don't know how long they're going to be. Kind of part of this idea of this event is we're going to worship and we're going to pray until we're done. And so if you have kids, we'll, I'll give directions to this, but you can just leave early. But the point is, as we begin to think about that week, we're calling it Revive Week because we're asking God to bring revival in our hearts. And we're going to give this idea, you're going to hear Pastor David, who's going to be leading us, give this idea, if you could take... Uh, a circle and draw an 18-inch circle around yourself and just say, God, would you bring revival into this circle? 
would be revival into my life. And as we pray and think about revival, that week is focused on that. It's just a time for us to come in and worship and to be with God. We'll have activities for kids uh, just like we are right now because we want you as parents to be able to, to be a part of that and focus. But here, here's the thought as a, why am I bringing that up? Because when we think about this text, we think about Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, we see Isaiah see God in his holiness and his glory. He repents of his sin. And then what does he do? He goes on mission. See, in scripture, there's always this response. You encounter the king of kings. You see God as the Messiah. You see him for what he is. You yourself have an encounter that changes your life. And then immediately there's this response of going and getting others to come and see Jesus themselves. With Isaiah, it ends. Isaiah's moment where he sees God in his glory in Isaiah chapter 6, and he cries out, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And in that repentance, we see uh, the uh, forgiveness come upon him, and the angel takes tongs from the altar, which represents God's justice and judgment and holiness, and he touches that which is unclean, Isaiah's lips, and it makes him clean. And then what is the response? God says, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah goes, hey, pick me. I will go, send me. I will go, why? Because when we encounter Jesus, there's a response to go. We want others to encounter Jesus also. And this is precisely what happens with these disciples. They encounter Jesus. They find the Messiah. They anticipation of longing for this Messiah. They finally find the Messiah. They're with the Messiah. They've met the Messiah. And they find out where he's staying. And then they leave to go get others so that they can come back. They, 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 we see Andrew, where are you staying? I'm staying here. Wonderful. Okay, I'll be right back. And then he goes, and they find out he goes and gets his brother, and he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus speaks into Peter's life and forever changes his life. Then the next day, we have a similar situation. Jesus encounters Philip. Philip's life's forever changed. Then what did he do? He went and found Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel gives us... Um, an answer to the objection that often comes when we think about inviting people to Jesus. What happens with the skeptics? What happens when we encounter skeptics? Because a lot of times I think when we think about evangelism or sharing our faith or inviting people to Jesus, we are often hesitant because we recognize there are good skeptics, skeptical questions. There are good questions that people have, and we need to be prepared to answer those questions. But can I simplify things for us a little bit tonight? that our job is not always to answer all the questions. Our job is to bring and invite people to Jesus and allow Jesus to speak into the skeptic's heart. This is what Jesus does here with Nathaniel. Nathaniel goes, <laughs> can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, can anything good come from there? Now, I don't understand the culture to understand like how to relate that, but I hope nobody in Mississippi is listening to this. But we live next to a town Pearl, Mississippi. And I said that about as country as I could. And we had a similar kind of feeling about Pearl as maybe people do of here with Nazareth. Like it's Pearl, Mississippi. Like, can you get more country than that? And so we might have, you maybe think of your hometown or wherever you are, you may have kind of a similar town in mind that you're like, yeah, nothing good's coming out of Pearl, Mississippi, except for some catfish. Now, catfish out of Pearl, Mississippi is fantastic. That's neither here nor there. But they have this, Nathaniel has this moment where he goes, hey, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's a skeptic. He's not sure. He's immediately doubting. But Philip brings him anyways. 
And then one encounter with Jesus, the skepticism is immediately transformed. Yeah, I recognize that when we think, when we have conversations with skeptics, we need to engage and answer their questions. But at the end of the day, as Jesus has the ability to transform your mind and your heart in a way that no other person can, and our job is when we've encountered and we believe Jesus to be who he is and we recognize him as that, our response should be simply to invite others to Jesus. So the next question along with that, how do we invite people to Jesus? Now, I want you to recognize I've been very clear I've been intentionally saying inviting people to Jesus because I think invitation's the right word here. Not just sharing the gospel, which is part of it, but inviting people to Jesus. And there's a number of ways to invite people to Jesus, but I've been intentionally saying invite people to Jesus and not invite people to church. Now, one of the ways you invite people to Jesus is to invite people to church. And so please invite people to church, but don't hear this just as an invitation to say, hey, try to get people in this building. It's not. Because Jesus doesn't live just in this building. He lives in you. He lives in your life. He lives in your home. And so when you invite people to Jesus, you're inviting them to, to, to all of his word. You're inviting them maybe into your house for a meal or into a conversation. You recognize that Jesus is living in you and through you. And so to invite people to Jesus is to reveal Jesus to them through his word and through your life. When we begin to think about this, though, there is an emphasis in Scripture on the speaking aspect of inviting people to Jesus. A few years ago, I was on my way to Guatemala. We had the, some of you, many of you have had the privilege of going with us on a mission trip to Guatemala. I was still living in Mississippi at the time. I was taking high school and college students uh, to Guatemala, and for whatever reason, um, I had a different itinerary from Mississippi to Houston, which we were then connecting from Houston to Guatemala. And so I got to Houston about eight hours before everybody else, um, but then they were going to meet me, and then we we're going to take all in the same flight. So I had eight hours in the Houston airport, which is perfectly fine for me because the introvert in me, I was also a United, that's United's hub, I'm a United member, and so I get access to their club. And so no problem, I had a writing assignment that was due, I'll spend those eight hours and I'll write. And so I spent eight hours in this lounge writing and taking breaks, and through those eight hours, because people weren't there as long as I was, there was a lot of in and out. And towards the end of the eight hours, there was this uh, team that came in, um, and they were wearing shirts that said, Faith in Practice. And so they come, there's about five or six of them, they come and sit down, and because of their shirts, Faith in Practice, um, I engage them in conversation, find out they're going to Guatemala also, also, which allowed us to have a lot of dialogue so I'm, as I'm talking to them, I find out they're all uh, doctors and surgeons and nurses, and they were going to do medical missions, which I was really grateful for. There's a lot of need for that. But as I was beginning to um, ask questions and talk to them, I noticed they began to brag about not proselytizing. They said, hey, we're, we're, our faith and practice, we are a, a, a Christian organization that's going, and we're compelled by our Christian beliefs to go and serve others but we do not proselytize in any way. We think that is not healthy, that people should not proselytize. And I'm like, okay, I'm a little confused. Uh, so I started asking more questions. So I find out you know, more of what they're doing. They even went on to say that at times they'll have patients ask for prayer. And many a times they'll send an atheist in to pray for them because they don't want to proselytize. And I'm like, well, who's the atheist praying to? Like, like, like okay. But the point was, is I was really just caught off by this. Why? 
because we recognize that we cannot invite people to Jesus without using words. There's a famous saying by Francis of Assisi, which I think was popular in his time for good reason, but it often gets popularized in our day as well, which says this, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And I'm like, that sounds great because actually the point he's trying to get at is that we should live out our faith also, which is true, absolutely. But here's the problem with that, is this exactly what this team was doing. They were living out their faith in such a way they were serving others with their giftings, but they were not using any words to talk about why they were going. Ed Stetzer, playing off this idea, would say this, preach the gospel at all times, and since it's necessary, use words. When we begin to think about inviting others to Jesus, that very much means that we must share with them about Jesus. We must let them know about the good news of Jesus Christ. And once again, I'm so grateful for this mission team and they're going and serving and using their giftings to care for other people. But listen to me, we must be a church that meets physical needs and spiritual needs, recognizing that spiritual needs are much greater than physical needs. Because physical needs are temporary, but spiritual needs are 